Thank you, Katie. You do a very nice job each week of that. It's pleasant. Thank you for the blood of Jesus that reaches to the highest mountain and runs to the lowest valley. The blood that gives me strength from day to day. It never loses power. That's what that song is about. Wonderful message. Amen. It makes me think of the, um, the scripture that says, um, I mentioned it a couple weeks ago, I think, if the heavens, uh, if the heavens above can be measured and the foundations of the earth searched below, then will I forsake my covenant and remember my people no more. And I'm sorry, I can't remember exactly where that is. It might be Jeremiah or Isaiah or something like that. But it's basically saying you will never be able to find the end of space. You will never be able to measure space. And what's fascinating, you'll never be able to search out the foundations of the earth. And you think, well, surely we've done that by now. No, we haven't. You know that even in the ocean, we haven't actually gone to the deepest part of the ocean. Every time the deepest parts, they, they come up with some strong metal or some great vessel that they think will be able to delve into the very blackest depths, the deepest part of the ocean, and when they get down to a certain point, it crushes it, and they never get it back. Well, maybe they get it back, I don't know. But they can't get that deep, even just the ocean. To get to the bottom, the very bottom of the ocean, they can't get it, the deepest parts. We can't go down into the core of the earth. We've not been able to send anything down into the core other than a a drill, but even then it only goes a little ways. The very core of the earth, we've only barely gotten through the surface, honestly, folks, with the drilling we've done. The crust of the earth is extremely thick, and there's so much more <laughs> that we've never gotten to. So God is never going, we're never going to search out the depths of the foundations of the earth will never be searched out. Because if that happens, God says, if that happens, well, then I'll, I won't remember my covenant anymore. Well, that makes me say, well, that's never going to happen. You can't do it. He's saying, as both things are impossible, so me forgetting you is impossible. Never going to happen. Well, praise the Lord. I have, uh, I'm excited about this message to share with you today, but I don't want to do it. I don't want to say anything to you without knowing that God is anointing what I say. Because I can give you my words, and I'm, I do. I'm plenty good at giving you my words. But giving you God's words is the most important thing. Telling you what His Word says, what the truth is, is something that only the Holy Spirit can really do right. And so I want to entreat His help for me to speak and for you to listen and understand, not just hear, but hear with understanding. So let's pray. Father in heaven, we are thankful for the opportunity that we have to just look into the Bible and see the truth. We're thankful that you reveal yourself to us in the Word. And we're thankful so much for the gift of Jesus Christ upon the cross who makes all of this possible. And his ultimate triumph over death and his life now uh, seated at the right hand of God the Father in heaven. He has made all of this possible and we thank you. Father, we entreat you and we ask you to anoint this time that you would allow me to speak the truth and that you would speak through me. Lord, we pray that you would allow all that hear this message today to understand, to let this truth sink into their hearts and become real in their life. We pray that we would not confront the truth and be unchanged, but that we would submit and humbly receive the truth. And we pray for this in Jesus' name. Amen. Turn to Genesis chapter 1. I can't tell you how interesting this study has been to me, how enlightening things that I never knew, things that I assumed were true and were not. I've been challenged in so many different ways in studying this these few verses.
Friends, we're at uh, verse 20. For the past seven weeks, we have been studying the first book, of first chapter of Genesis, and we've only gotten to verse 20. And it's been so rich to me, and I hope that you have not only enjoyed the journey, but been benefited in your life by the things the Lord has shared to us in His Word. Today, the title of this message is Fish, Fowl, and First Blessing. Genesis chapter 1, verse 20. We'll start reading in verse 20 and read through verse 23. And God said, Let the waters bring forth abundantly the moving creature that hath life, and fowl that may fly above the earth in the open firmament of heaven. And God created great whales and every living creature that moveth, which the waters brought forth abundantly after their kind, and every winged fowl after his kind. And God saw that it was good. And God blessed them, saying, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the waters in the seas, and let fowl multiply in the earth. And the evening and the morning were the fifth day. I'd like to reiterate that all of these things happened in 24-hour periods. The evening and the morning were the fifth day. Very clearly from the context of Scripture, and as you dig deeper into the words and as you let Scripture interpret Scripture, you find that these are literal 24-hour periods. Anyone that tries to tell you differently has not really studied the Bible out if they have at all. Some people will say, well, evolution is true. Well, they don't know the Bible or they don't believe it. Some people try to say, well, God created the world using evolution. Well, that doesn't work either because those two things are in opposition to each other. And so I just want to, again, reiterate that context to studying this passage. And that is that creation and evolution do not mix. And it's either six literal days or it's millions of years and you can't put the two together. Evening and morning. So here we have day five. Life begins on day five. The breathing life, the moving creatures. Plants were created on day four, but on day five, no, I'm sorry, plants were created on day three. Day four was the planets and the stars and the sun and the moon. Day five, we get the birds and the fish. These are a different type of life than plant life. These don't breathe sunlight and exhale oxygen. These breathe oxygen and exhale carbon dioxide. Even fish now, fish take oxygen in from the water. Fish breathe differently. They have gills and not lungs, but they still breathe oxygen. They're, they're oxygen breathers. Not air breathers, but they breathe oxygen. So the living creature, life, is created on day five. Life that is different than the life that the plants have. Completely different. In fact, the Hebrew word nefesh literally means to breathe. Nefesh is the word life, living. There in uh, verse 20, bring forth abundantly the moving creature that hath life, nefesh. Why is this significant? Well, we will see that our God in heaven is a God that loves life. He loves life. First, let's talk about the fish. Let's talk about the fish. When it says here in verse 20, bring forth abundantly the moving creature, it is two Hebrew words that's translated, bring forth abundantly the moving creature. It's just two words. Those two words are sharats and sharets. Yeah, I know. Really close, right? Well, wait, wait a second. Some 
uh, English versions of the Bible, which I trust, uh, translate these, these two words, sharats and sharets, as swarm with swarms. The word means a swarm. And so when God says, uh, let the waters bring forth abundantly the moving creature, he's saying, let the waters swarm with swarms of life. Let it swarm with swarms. And I think that's an accurate translation. I don't think that the King James is wrong, but it helps us to understand what is being communicated here when we say it means us to swarm with swarms. And I think that's significant. Let's read that again real quickly. And God said, let the waters... Matt, do we maybe have the New American Standard Bible version there? Maybe not. Well, anyway, I think that's the one that did it. But let's read this a little differently. And God said, Let the waters swarm with swarms that hath life, and fowl that may fly above the earth. Swarms. I found this quite interesting. I studied how many species are in the ocean. There is between 27,000 and 30,000 distinct species of fish. Different species. That's not the number of fish. That's the number of kinds of fish. As many as 30,000 distinct species. Compared that to 5,400 mammals and 8,200 species of reptile and 10,000 species of bird. 30,000 different species in the ocean. Well, I think that may include freshwater creatures as well. 30,000 different species of fish now, just of fish. Now, if you add crustaceans, which are crabs and lobsters, if you add mollusks, which are squid and octopus, those kind of creatures, if you add sea mammals and sea birds, there are more than 230,000 different species that live in the ocean. That's a lot of swarms. 230,000 different species of creature that live just in the ocean or around it. Seabirds, things like that. Sea lions, dolphins, whales. 230,000. <laughs> Katie says she's never getting in the ocean again. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it scares me too. Now, that displays to us our Creator's incredible creativity and detail. Think about life, friends. Think about the cells that make up the body of just one fish. Let's think even smaller. Let's think just one little, you know, plankton. Plankton are really, really tiny animals that whales eat. They eat tons and tons of them. Think of a little tiny crab, a little sea crab. There's, there's octopus that live in the, the ocean that are you know the, the size of a silver dollar, or a quarter even, I think, some of them. Now think about how many cells are in those animals. Think about the incredible detail of a single cell. Just one single cell involves such incredibly detailed and precise mechanisms so that people have called them tiny machines, microscopic machines, things that have amino acids and, and enzymes that are working together to create DNA which tells the cell what to do, multiply times trillions in one fish. Just one fish. And that one fish has thousands upon thousands of relatives. And that's just his species. And then now we're going to have 230,000 different species in the ocean. That's an incredible amount of detail because all those animals are different. Some of, them eat, some of them eat this type of plant. Some of them eat plankton. Some of them are huge and massive beyond anything bigger than this whole building. Some of them are so tiny you have to have a microscope to, a microscope to see them. That's an immense amount 
of detail and creativity, and that all came from the words of our Savior, uh, words of our Father, our Creator in heaven. That's an immense amount of detail and creativity. Why is it so abundant in the ocean? The, mass, the vast majority of life exists in the ocean on earth. Why so abundant? Well, one reason is because in the ocean, they escaped a lot of the destruction of the flood. The flood wiped out all the air breathers, or you know, except for six people on the ark and all the animals he had with him. But the water breathers, the, those that breathed through the water, were able to survive more. Now, not all of them did, because there was a lot more happening in the flood than just rain, and we'll get to that probably, I don't know, a year from now. <laughs> Could be a long time. A lot more was happening in the flood than just raining a lot. The fountains of the great deep burst forth, burst forth and I think volcanoes were erupting and all kinds of crazy things going on. However, a large portion of the animals in the ocean would have survived. More than just the two by two that were on the ark. Two by two by seven because the clean animals had seven. I knew somebody was thinking that. Probably... Probably my accuracy monitor over there. I appreciate John so much. He's very good at helping me to be accurate. Another reason that it's so abundant in the ocean is simply because God wanted to create swarms of swarms. He wanted a bunch. He wanted abundant life. It says, and I think in verse 22... No, verse 21, And God created great whales and every living creature that moveth, which the waters brought forth abundantly. It says abundantly there's life in the water. And after their kind, and every winged fowl after his kind. You know, it doesn't say the sky brought forth abundantly the winged fowl. No, it says the waters brought forth abundant life. God wanted swarms upon swarms upon swarms in the ocean. He wanted it that way. You see, he designed the earth to be filled. He designed it to be filled up. He didn't just design a cup to just sit there and be an empty cup. He wanted stuff in it. He wanted the cup to be full. Full of what? Full of life. Full of the living, moving, breathing creatures. Full of life. What about sea monsters? Now, some of you that were getting sleepy just went, what did he say? What did he say? Sea monsters? Uh, this is quite interesting, and honestly, I could take a long time to talk about it, but we're not going to take a long time. But look at this word, great whales. Verse 21, God created great whales. Now, in Hebrew, that Hebrew word is tanin. Tanin is the word that is translated whales. And uh, it's translated, you can look this up in Strong's and Brown Driver Briggs dictionaries. It's translated sea monster, serpent, and dragon. The word tanin. Throughout the Bible, it's used in 23 different verses throughout the Old Testament, That just that one word. And it's translated sometimes serpent, sometimes dragon, sometimes sea monster. In, in a couple other versions that I read, it actually said, and God created great sea monsters. Some of them say great sea creatures. Some of them say, well, that was the main variations there. But they do say sea monster. Now, the word great in Hebrew uh, can mean large. Great, if you think about it, has a couple different connotations. Yeah, if you're a great man, well, that doesn't mean you're a large man, necessarily. It means you have good character. Well, for some of us, it might mean large. But great can also mean large. If you think of the Great Wall of China, well, they're not saying that wall has wonderful character. It, they're saying it's very big. It's a large thing. So when God says, I created... He's basically telling us, I created great sea monsters. He's saying large sea monsters, large serpents, large 
dragons. Well, hang on a second, preacher. Hang on a second. You've just stepped off the edge into crazy land. You're saying, I mean, dragons, I mean, you know, that's, Tolkien wrote about dragons. I mean, you know, you, <laughs> that's not in the Bible. God didn't write about dragons. Yes, he did, 23 different times. He used this word, tanin. Well, wait a minute. This Bible, KJV, now listen, that dragon thing is only in the KJV version. It's translated, it's, it's the word tanin is used 23 times. So in 1611, they translated the King James Bible. Now the word dinosaur did not appear until 1841. So before 1841, to describe great gigantic lizards, great reptiles, they would have used the word dragon. And they did throughout history until 1841 when somebody decided, well, you know, these ancient gigantic creatures that we're finding fossil records of, we should call them dinosaurs, which basically means terrible lizard. That's what it means. They would have used the word dragon. Now, most dinosaurs were made on day six, but these sea creatures, such as the plesiosaur and the mosasaurs, etc., which we often call them monsters, they were made on day five with the other sea animals. Now, it's not, it's not under debate. These creatures existed. The Mosasaurus was, they found some that were 50 feet long, and his head was as tall as a man, just this head. You can find the, the bones. They were gigantic sea creatures. Plesiosaurus, huge sea creature with flippers and a long neck and sharp teeth. They existed. God created these creatures, these great sea monsters. It's not just talking about whales like, you know, beluga whales and humpbacks and blue, blue whales and stuff like that. It's talking about gigantic sea creatures. It's specifically talking about sea monsters, sea lizards. Leviathan is talked about in Job and in other places in the Bible. And Leviathan is described as a great seagoing reptile of great size and strength. He was one of those sea monsters. Now, friends, God created all kinds of things on day five. Created octopus, created sharks, created a whole lot of things. Day five. He also created great sea monsters on day five. Now, we have sharks today and we have octopus today and we have lobsters today so is there a chance that we might have sea monsters today still i would say yes there's definitely a chance and there's been some evidence that they've seen some now i won't go any further than that i'd love to talk about with you after church but the fact is biblically speaking there's a chance that some of those sea monsters live to today but even if they didn't, we know that they lived. We know that those creatures existed. And we know that they existed at the same time as human beings, in the same areas. There are many, many legends and, and stories and historical accounts of people seeing, encountering, hunting dragons. Throughout history, throughout all parts of the world, they have dragon stories. Now, in our time today, since 1841, we say, well, that's all myth. Well, what if, what if all those stories, instead of saying the word dragon, what if they said dinosaur? Then it wouldn't be myth, would it? That's what's happening. We've changed terms, and we have now understand dragons to be something else, when actually dragons were just big old dinosaurs that survived after the flood and interacted with people. And maybe all of them have been hunted to extinction, but maybe not. I think that it's important for us to understand the biblical teachings about dinosaurs when we're having discussions with others in the world. We need to understand. In that vein, I wanted to just read this briefly to you. It's not long. It comes from Answers in Genesis. The idea of dinosaur survival is not at all unlikely. 
in view of what the Bible teaches is the real history of the world. Africa is still vastly unexplored continent with ample suitable habitat for dinosaurs. Thousands of square kilometers of impenetrable swamps and thick jungle cover the Congo and may have never been visited. The same can be said concerning possible sea monsters. The world's oceans cover over two-thirds of our planet, an average a depth of 10,000 feet, more than twice that of the Grand Canyon. At their deepest, which is seven miles, Mount Everest would be completely hidden at the deepest part of the ocean. There is plenty of room in these vast depths for animals still unknown to modern science as living specimens. Finding a living dinosaurian creature gains feasibility when we realize that less spectacular creatures have been found which, like dinosaurs, were also believed to have been extinct for millions of years between their appearance as fossils and the present. So they found animals that they thought were extinct millions of years ago. They found fossil evidence and then they found living creatures that matched exactly those fossils. So the fact that they did that gives credence to the idea that some of the sea monsters that God made on day five would have survived to now. And we just haven't found them in the seven miles of depths that the ocean has. So anyway, I think that's important to know and understand and address. And I'm sure we will address more of that as we go through Genesis. How about the fowl? There are about, as I said, 10,000 species of birds worldwide. Birds were created to fly. Flight is an amazing feat of engineering and it's designed by the Father. Flight is designed by Him. The only, real, really, the only reason we're able to go in an airplane and have machines that fly in the air is because we studied birds and the way God designed flight to work. Now, before the service, we were trying to arrange a video to be able to be played. And I'm getting the heads up, the thumbs up, that we have the video on flight for you to see. So I'd like us to observe this video and uh, it's just fascinating to see what God has done. So our wonderful uh, technicians over here are going to help us get this situated and put in place. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take care of some of our lights. no living thing has captured man's imagination more than birds. Birds were specially created on day five, before God made dinosaurs and other land animals. Their complex design works together in perfect harmony to make flight possible. Consider the common seagull. First, it's designed to be light. Its bones are hollow, but strengthened by braces. Engineers have adopted this same design in airplane wings and steel girders, because it's ideal for minimum weight and maximum strength. In addition to being lightweight, birds are well balanced with their weight centered under their wings. Powerful breast muscles pull the wings downward, while an ingenious pulley system pulls the wings upward. Another design is the bird's wishbone. Formed by the fusion of the collarbones, the wishbone is both sturdy and flexible, so it keeps the force of the wing muscles from crushing the bird's chest. Birds also have a high-performance breathing system unique in the animal world. Rather than constantly lifting and lowering a diaphragm and ribs, their muscles pump air directly into air sacs and hollow bones. At the same time, the strong but light rib cage is held rigid by a clever combination of fused bones and struts. A critical design in birds is a broad surface area for lift. The bird's wings and feathers accomplish this beautifully. The central veins of feathers are hollow for lightness, 
and crisscrossed with barbs and barbules for maximum strength. And at the base of the feathers, individually controlled muscles move and rotate each feather, changing the shape of the wing to maximize lift. Feathers in the tail and wings also control navigation. Every feature of birds, from the muscles in the chest to the feathers on the wings, is well designed for flight. that incredible God invented that he thought it all up and all of those pieces and all of those things work together to allow them to fly you think about that every single every single feather can be adjusted and moved so that they can so that they can get up into the air there's thrust and lift and all these things that are, these, these forces that are important to allowing them to fly through the sky. Now, what purpose do we see in flight? Well, that's, I don't know if this is the only answer. There's a lot of answers, but how else would they fill the sky if they didn't fly? God had to have something to fill the sky and in order for that to happen, he's got to have something that can fly. So he made birds to fill the sky because God wants the earth to be full, to be full of life, living, moving, breathing things. How interesting is that about the lungs? They don't have to, birds don't, you know, constantly expand and retract their chest with a diaphragm. They got muscles that just go was just air just flowing constantly through them pushing it all the way out to everything that they need and they're not going like this they're just going here comes the air here comes the air incredible it's incredible unique in the animal kingdom why because they got to have a high efficiency they got to have plenty of oxygen because it takes a lot of energy to get up in the air do you think evolution could have done that could evolution have made flight happen? Could it just accidentally, you know, one uh, pre prevalent popular theory right now is that birds evolved, or dinosaurs evolved into birds. Well, biblically speaking, that's not possible because birds were made first. Day five, even if you say millions of years of evolution, blah, 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 well, you have to then say that birds evolved into dinosaurs because they were made on day five and dinosaurs on day six, the land dinosaurs. So that's completely bogus, but think about it. If you're talking to your friend who says, yeah, you know, I mean, you know, it's amazing how flight evolved, man. I mean, wow. And apparently everyone that's stupid comes from California. Apparently, because whenever somebody says, yeah, man, they start talking with a Californian accent. And they, anyway, this is kind of funny. <laughs> but the fact of the matter is, when somebody, you're talking to them and they say, yeah, it's amazing how flight evolved. You say, well, it's interesting you would say that, how could that have happened? What would the transitional form or the in-between animal have looked like? Between whatever was crawling around on the ground and then suddenly, you know, he had a child that somehow developed these appendages on the outside that sort of helped him, gave him some sort of crazy advantage and then after a few thousand years or millions of years, some other creature of that guy had, oh, well, his appendages were a little longer, and that somehow gave him an advantage, and, and eventually they became wings. Okay, but he still can't fly because he's got to have a highly developed system of lung breathing. He's got to have incredibly strong breast muscles and an ingenious pulley system to pull him back up. He's got to have individual feathers that all move. So all of those things evolve at the same time? Wait a minute. Now we're, now we're getting off into really, really... <laughs> if evolution wasn't crazy enough, you just say, what would that transitional form have looked like? Would he have had, you know, just unusable wings and eventually the wings became usable after so much evolution and mutation? You say, if he goes, well, yeah, probably. How else could have happened? 
then you could say, why haven't we ever found one? They have yet, in the millions of fossils they find in the ground, they have never found a, a transitional form, a creature that would have been the in-between between, say, dinosaurs or lizards and birds. If that's you know, their theory, dinosaurs evolved into birds, and that's why we don't find very many dinosaurs now, that's what their theory is. Well, then say, well, what's the in-between guy? Why don't we ever find anything in between? It's because evolution didn't happen. So it's important to be able to discuss this and understand and say, listen, you know how a complicated flight is? You know you have to have hollow bones, but bones that won't break. They have to be strong as well as hollow and light. You see those girders up there in the steel building? Do you know where they got that idea? God. He invented flight. You see birds fly to bring glory to God who is the one who invented flight. They exist to bring him glory for his engineering skill. He invented engineering, so we ought to think of him as pretty much the best engineer. Well, how about this third thing here? We talked about fish. We've talked about fowl. How about the first blessing? Look at verse 22. And God blessed them, saying, Be fruitful and multiply. And fill the waters in the seas. And let fowl multiply in the earth. Fill the waters. Let the fowl multiply. This is the first blessing in the Bible. The, the Hebrew word for blessing in this passage is barak. It means to bless or to kneel. It has the idea of adoration or adoring. Barak is a root word which occurs 330 times in the Old Testament. Blessings from God, which would be a blessing from the position of authority, blessings from God invoke the picture of a loving father kneeling down to adore his beloved child and speak kind and good things to him face to face. See, from a position of authority, a blessing invokes, when you say the word blessing, literally the meaning of the Hebrew word invokes this picture of a father kneeling down to his child and saying face to face good things. Showing him adoration, adoring his child. Not adoration in the sense of worshiping him, but in the sense of adoring and loving his child. That's the picture invoked by the word barak, blessing. Hebrew. Blessing from us to God, which is a position of submission. We have blessings which are from a position of authority, and we have blessings that are from a position of submission. That invokes the picture of humbly kneeling before our Maker and giving Him adoration and honor. You see, that helps the phrase, bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless His holy name. That makes that passage of Scripture make a whole lot more sense to me. For a while, I struggled with the idea of blessing God because I thought of blessings as something an authority would give to his subordinate. Or, you know, from a position of authority, I bless you. I speak God's blessings down upon you. And that is what it is. But blessing also works the other direction from a position of submission. And it involves kneeling and adoring the one whom you are blessing. So when I say, bless the Lord, O my soul, may God be blessed, may his name be honored, that is a blessing I'm speaking to God from a position of submission. And it makes so much sense when I think of the Hebrew word means kneel. And it, it means adoration, has a context and a picture of adoring. In scripture, the blessing has incredible significance and power incredible significance and power in the blessing. And friends, honestly, I could spend an entire message just on the significance of blessing in the Bible, the occurrences of blessing, what it means, what it is, what it does, how to do it. The power of the blessing is based in God's power. It's not some hocus-pocus magic words. If I say the right words, then this special thing will happen to you. Some people would actually teach that the, that the Scripture teaches us this. It's nothing 
within ourselves or magic words that I speak that bring about God's goodness. Just uh, Some people will, will teach. Just say over and over, I am a good person. I am a good person. Say over and over, sports car, sports car, sports car, sports car. Millions of dollars, millions of dollars, millions of dollars. A beautiful wife, a beautiful wife, a beautiful wife, a beautiful wife. A beautiful husband, a beautiful husband, a beautiful husband. They teach that to say that over and over again creates great power in your life and brings about all these good things. And that's the power of spoken word. You know, the Bible teaches us the word spoken is powerful. Well, it does teach us that. But the power is not within us. It's within him. And speaking a blessing is invoking God's power upon something. He is the one that causes a blessing to be good. But if you speak a blessing early in the morning, it will be taken as a curse. It's not just the words. It's the spirit behind those words. And the true spirit bringing the power is God himself. The Bible does say in Proverbs 18, verse 21, death and life are in the power of the tongue. The power of the tongue has death and has life in it. Why? Because the, the words of God are powerful. And because we are in the image of God, the words we speak are powerful too. Not because we are great, but because he is great. And if I speak cursing upon someone, it can be negative. If I speak blessing upon them, it can be positive in their life. That is true. But it's because of him, not because of us. It's because that's the way God made the world to work in many instances. I probably cannot overstate the significance of blessings in Scripture. I don't think I could speak it too much. I don't think I could overstate the power of blessings. So the very first blessing ever given in the Bible, ever anywhere in the world, would have very great significance. So what was that blessing? Friends, I think to summarize it, there's probably a plenty of deep truth we could dig out here. But to give you a brief summary, God blessed them with life. He blessed them with life. When he says, be fruitful and multiply, what he's basically saying is have a bunch of babies. Be fruitful, multiply. Be abundant in the earth. Fill up the earth. Fill up the, well, really in this case, he's saying, fill up the sea and fill up the sky with life. Multiply yourselves. You ever wonder if animals understand what God says? I believe absolutely they do. God speaks to them in whatever language they need to hear, and they know exactly what he's saying. Now, not in the sense that they don't really understand speech, but in their instincts, God says, you will be a fish, and a fish knows exactly how to be a fish. You will be a tiger, and a tiger knows exactly how to be a tiger and what a tiger is supposed to do. When God says, be fruitful and multiply, they know what that means. They know what to do. They have an instinct inside of them that says, I'm obeying God. Fill the earth. It's designed to be full, but it's designed to be full of life, full of life. You know, friends, I, I believe that this scripture is teaching us you can't overpopulate the earth. That's a false teaching. That's a false idea. Oh, overpopulation is in danger. We're in danger. No, we're not. We can fit the entire population of every person in the world can get an entire mile square and you'd be in like the entire city of Jacksonville, Florida. Every person in the world. Something like that. Or maybe it's, maybe it's the whole, no, it's not that, but it's like the whole state of Arkansas or something. It's incredible. Square yard projected. That's, okay, thank you. Everybody gets a square yard. So you get three feet, and everybody in the world can fit in Jacksonville. And you got three feet on either side. Thank you. But the point is, we can't overpopulate the world. God designed the world to be full of life. He designed it that way. as opposed to death. He did not design the world to be full of death. When our society glorifies death, the glorification of death in our world, and you can see evidence of it everywhere, 
the glorification of death in our culture is a symptom of our rebellion against a living God that loves life. We serve a living God that loves life. And when we glorify death, that's a symptom of rebellion against him. What's the lesson for people? What's the lesson for me today, preacher, that I can learn from this blessing, the very first blessing God gave? Be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters in the seas and let fowl multiply in the earth. What's the lesson for me? The lesson is that God loves life. God is a God that loves living things. He loves living things. He loves life. He wants us to live. He wants us to live, friends. He wants us to cherish and enjoy the life that we've been given here in the world. God is not a God of sober, always serious, English accent, of course, um, <clears throat> deep-voiced. How dare you laugh? Things are too serious to laugh. Be gone with you. God is not that kind of a serious, you know, condemning God. He's a happy, joyful, rejoicing God who also hates sin and judges sin and is very serious. But he loves for us to laugh. He loves for us to enjoy the world in which we live. Things that bring us pleasure are good. Now, the devil can take all of those things and twist them up and make them evil. But God designed the good things of the world. He designed it to be full of life, to live life to the fullest. God invented that phrase, live life to the fullest. Now, it's not in the Bible. Don't think literally word for word. But that idea is his idea. Now, that doesn't mean we have to jump off of cliffs or, you know, fly out of airplanes in order to really live, man. We don't have to get on a surfboard and be chased by a shark and, you know, hit the tunnel of the surfing wave or whatever to really be alive. Okay, all that extreme stuff, those people are addicted to adrenaline and they think they're alive, but all that's empty. They think, oh, I'm really alive when, this, when I'm flying towards the ground at thousands of, you know, feet a second and, you know, only this parachute to save me. Whew. They think that's a living and it's not. God wants us to live life for the fullest. What does that mean? It means to be grateful for the many blessings that we have in this life and to enjoy those blessings, to rejoice in those blessings. Do you got a car? Thank God for that car. Not everybody's got a car. Can I get it? Amen. <laughs> That's right. Is your car working? Hey, there's another one. Thank God for that. Not all cars work. Even those that have them don't always work. Do you got two legs that work? Rejoice in those two legs. They don't work as well as they used to. Well, it's better than nothing. Do you got no legs? Thank God for wheelchairs. Who invented the wheel? He did. He thought of it. Well, you don't know what it's like to be stuck in that wheelchair. You're right, I don't. And you have my sympathy. But it's better than nothing. There are a thousand things that we can thank God for. Are you living? Are you alive today? Are you breathing? Every breath is something to thank God for because he designed us to enjoy our lives. Well, preacher, what about when life is so hard I don't want to live anymore? What if I'm kind of tired of living because my life is that, is that bad? I'm sick of this. I don't want to live anymore. Well, I would remind you that life is hard for everyone. If you're alive, it's hard. Life is not easy. But that's not life's fault. That's the fault of sin. Sin has corrupted our lives. Sin creates pain and sorrow and, and death. The Bible says the wages of sin is death. That's not just physically dying, even though that is partly a meaning of that, an application of it. It's also death to our, our relationships. Sin brings death to my relationships. 
Sin brings death to my finances. Sin brings death to my ability to effectively minister in God's kingdom. Sin brings that death. The wages of sin is death. That is the effect of sin. It corrupts life. Sin corrupts life. Now that doesn't mean if you have a hard life that somehow you're sinful. Just ask Job. It just means that sin in general, because we live in a fallen world, life is hard. It's fallen and corrupted. But there's still an awful lot to be grateful for. And we have to remember the blessings God has given us and not focus on all the negative things of life. Focus on all the good. I'd almost be willing to tell you. I'd almost be willing to bet if I was a betting man that you'd find more positive than negative if you started listening to them. If you started really thinking about it. What are the good things of your life? And then I would remind you what true life really is. Let me read a couple of scriptures for you. Remind yourself what true life really is. We're going to turn to the book of John. That John guy, he's pretty awesome. Both John the Apostle and John Robbins, both wonderful fellows. John chapter 1, verse 4. John 1, verse 4 says, In him, that is talking of Jesus Christ, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. The word that came into the world, he has life. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He is life. Not just in him, but he is true life. How about John 10, verse 10? John 10, verse 10. The thief cometh not but for to steal and to kill and to destroy. I am come that they might have life and that they might have it more abundantly. You think about the picture of abundant, massive life that exists in the ocean. And even in the sky, 10,000 different species of birds, 30,000 different species of fish, compared to 5,000 different species of mammals. Abundant life. Friends, that's the kind of abundant, unceasing, massive amount of life that God wants in our spiritual life as well. Spiritually, He wants us to be an ocean of life and joy and, and gratefulness and blessing. Abundant life. The abundant spiritual life Jesus intended for us to have is the life he brings to us. John 6, verse 47. Chapter 6, verse 47. It says, Verily, verily, I say unto you, He that believeth on me hath everlasting life. And John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth on him should not perish but what? But have everlasting life. Non-ending, never ceasing. See, God designed life to be without death. God designed life to never stop. He, when he created the fish and the birds, he did not intend for them to ever die. Death didn't even exist before Adam and Eve sinned. He wanted them to live forever. And he designed us to live forever, to have everlasting life. But only through one person. It's only when we believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, through him, that we find everlasting life. Believing upon Him and upon His redemption is the way life comes to us. And finally, in John 17, verse 3. 
John chapter 17, verse 3. And this is life eternal, that they might know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. Do you know why God loves life? Because Jesus is life. And to know Jesus, to know the Father, is eternal life. That is the definition of life, is knowing Him. And friends, if you don't know Jesus, you are not really living true life. Truly, the true life God designed for us to have, the everlasting, non-ending, forever kind of living, the abundant life Jesus intends for us to have, comes from knowing Him. And that is what we are to seek. That's where we find fulfillment and joy. That's where the abundant life comes from, is from knowing Jesus. And if you don't know Him, you need to. And if your life has become this bleak ocean of death, if your life is dark and empty, if your life is no longer valuable, you think, I don't really want to live anymore. You need to seek the face of Jesus and know Him because in knowing Him, you will find, you will find eternal life. I can say that unequivocally. I can say that with absolute confidence, without qualification. If you will seek to know the Savior, you will find abundant, fulfilling life that you will never find the end of. You will be able to rejoice in your life and thank God for the blessings He reveals to you because you will know the person from whom those blessings come. You will find everlasting life if you know the Savior. This day five, this is the day that God created life and He wants us to know that He loves life. He wants the world to be full of abundant life. And he wants us to remember that abundant life, true abundant life, comes from him. Comes from knowing him. And if we've somehow lost that on our road, and somehow that's fallen by the wayside, we need to pick it up, that truth. Jesus, knowing him, brings to me rejoicing. It brings life to my daily existence. It brings life to my life. Let's say maybe it brings living to my life. It brings life to my living. Knowing Jesus brings life to my living. And that is the way to live, friends. That's the way we should live. Don't forget. Don't forget. Next time you go fishing. Next time you go quail hunting. Next time you go bird watching. Next time you see a robin show up and bring springtime with it, remember that God loves life. He loves it a lot. And means for his world to be full of life. And he means for our hearts to be full of him. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we are so grateful to you that you decided to make life, to make the living, breathing creatures upon the world. And for that, we are grateful. We're grateful that you love life, that you're not a God of death. You're a living God of life. And we pray that you would fill us with the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ, which will bring to us the abundant life that you intended for us to live from the very beginning, that you intended for the whole world to have. Lord God, we rejoice in this and we thank you for it that we pray that you remind us of it. And we pray, Lord, that when we are tempted to despair, when we are ch tempted to think that there's no hope and that life is no longer valuable to us, that we will remember it's only in the face of Jesus that we find true life. And that if we will seek, a, seek Him, that we will find Him, that we will find everlasting life. 
remind us of this and help us to proclaim it to others, to know that we know that we know that this is true. Help us to declare it to other people. Thank you for revealing yourself to us in this passage of the scriptures. And we receive it with joy in the name of Jesus. Amen.